like it was yesterday. I was standing on one side of the island, and Sarah, my wife, was on the other end. At that time, I was holding my one-year-old Caleb in my arms, and in a split second, all I felt was pain. I didn't know what had happened, but I handed Caleb to Sarah so that I didn't drop him on the hardwood floor. And then I just remember screaming, my eye, my eye, my eye. And Sarah takes Caleb and she looks at his fingers and he has a jagged fingernail. And I couldn't see anything. I'd never felt pain like that in my life. They escorted me back to the bedroom. It wasn't even comfortable to lay down and close my eyes. So we called Dr. Hill and he got me in graciously right away. It's never a good sign when you go to a doctor and their first words are, ooh. (laughs) Followed by, wow, the center of your eye looks a little like the Grand Canyon. Not good. And so he put some numbing drops on my eye, which I'm still convinced are one of the greatest inventions God's ever come up with. (laughs) Put a bandage on my eye, they call it, and gave it a couple weeks. I had to go back in, and it it healed. I'm not in any more pain, but three years later, I still see fuzzy out of that eye. 20-20 vision, glasses won't help, contacts won't help, but I still see fuzzy out of that eye. And, And as I studied for the Good Samaritan this week... I began to realize there's some teachings of Jesus that I'm just a little bit fuzzy on. I don't see them the way he wants me to see them. And this is one of them. So we're in a series called Disciple Makers. You can see that on the banners. And the question we're asking, if you're following in your notes, the question we've been asking one another, are we becoming disciples who make disciples? Are we becoming disciples who make disciples. Jesus told us to share our faith. I'm clear on that. I get it. I get it. But what I get a bit fuzzy on sometimes is who I'm supposed to share that faith with. I loved Brian's message last week about sharing our faith consistently and persistently. I thought he did a fantastic job explaining that it's not our responsibility to change somebody, but it is our responsibility to share our faith with people. And I believe the teaching today flows directly out of that message, and it's going to help us understand, okay, I get that I'm supposed to share my faith consistently and persistently, but who am I supposed to share that faith with? Who am I supposed to do? And here's what I believe. This is my conviction. God has placed people in our paths in life, And if we just open our eyes to see where God's leading us and who he's putting in our path, we may be surprised on who we have the chance to share our faith with. Pastor Steve said these words two weeks ago. I just plain stole this from his message notes because I can't say it any better. If you're following in your notes, he said, making disciples happens by looking for divine opportunities to be used by God in our everyday lives. Making disciples happens by looking for divine opportunities to be used by God in our everyday lives. Because all of us have rhythms and routines in our lives that put us in consistent contact with individuals. But sometimes our vision's a little fuzzy. And maybe, just maybe some of these people that we're missing are the people that God wants us to share our faith with if we'd only open our eyes and see them.
Well, fortunately, Jesus tells a story about seeing people. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke. It's found in the New Testament. If you're getting used to your Bible, it's about two-thirds of the way back. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're in Luke chapter 10. If you don't know where that is, look in your table of contents. That's your best friend in the Bible. Never feel bad about looking in the table of contents. If you don't have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to grab a, bi- a black Bible from the seat back in front of you and follow along. We're going to be walking through this story line by line, and it would really benefit you to have it in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift. Take it home. We would love for you to have that. Well, my two boys, I have an eight-year-old and a four-year-old, and one of the favorite parts of my day is just before bedtime, they go to their book bag, and they get library books out, and we sit on the couch, and I get to read them a couple library books before we take them back to their bedrooms. And so I thought this morning, as I tell this story, I'd just sit down and share one of my favorite stories with you, just like I get to do with them every single night. It's one of the most famous stories Jesus has ever told. And if you're familiar with this story, my prayer is that we'll see it with fresh eyes and that we might begin to see that sharing our faith is a lifestyle and not so much this church program that we have to follow certain steps for. And if you're new here or you're just learning about Jesus and this Bible I'm still guessing you've probably heard the words, the Good Samaritan. I mean, they're even in our dictionary today. But you may not know the story that goes along with them. So you've picked a really good Sunday to be here. So our story begins in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 25. And we're told this in the Bible. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So the story begins with an expert in religious law, some translations say a lawyer, stands to test Jesus and he asks him a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, a good trial lawyer never asks a question that he doesn't know the answer to lest he look foolish. So the lawyer knows the answer to this question. In fact, he would have known the answer to this question from the time he was a little boy. And everybody in all of Israel would have known the answer to this question. Because they had a formula for inheriting eternal life, and it was found in Deuteronomy 6.5. They were taught this from the time they were babies. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This lawyer already knew the answer from his upbringing, and I'm wondering if he already knew the answer to this question because he had followed Jesus around and he'd heard Jesus answer this question before. Jesus traveled around quite a bit and was asked the same question many times. We read in Matthew 22, he was asked this exact same question. You can see this on the screen in verse 36 to 40. It says, teacher, he's talking to Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And Jesus adds this. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What Jesus did is he combined Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 and said all the laws, all the Old Testament, they point to these two commands. And so the story begins with a lawyer asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now time out from our story for just one second, because I want to be really clear about something. 
we can't do anything to inherit eternal life. Eternal life is not earned. It's inherited due to the death of another person. No amount of doing will make you into an heir. What we believe here is that if we trust in what Jesus accomplished on the cross, if we turn from our sin and we turn towards Jesus, the real churchy word called repent, if we turn from our sin and turn toward Jesus and what he did on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, we are heirs with Christ and we have inherited eternal life based on what he has done, not on what we've done. So we need to know that, but for this story... This story is being told in a Jewish context, so we need to know that the lawyer really believes he can inherit eternal life. Verse 26, we keep going, says, What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? The lawyer said, How do I inherit eternal life? Jesus said, You should know you're the expert. What's it say? And in verse 27, we're told how the lawyer responded with very familiar words. If you're following in your Bibles, he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And then I'm reading between the lines here, but I almost wonder if this lawyer kind of winked at Jesus because he heard him say it before, and he goes, And love your neighbor as yourself. A little extra credit. And Jesus looks at him and tells him in verse 28, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus tells the lawyer, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. If you love God perfectly all the time, and you love people perfectly all the time, then yes, you can earn your own salvation. Jesus says, try your hardest. Do those two things, and you can do it. You can do it. The only problem is, is this is an impossible command. I mean, we all know this, right? We can't love God perfectly all the time, and we certainly can't love people perfectly perfectly all the time. We can't even do it for an hour. When my wife sends me to Walmart to get a gallon of milk, I can't love people for 15 minutes. <laughs> it's just impossible. I need a savior. We need a savior. So, at this point, I wonder if this lawyer knew he was kind of trapped and the test had been turned around on him, or maybe he really still thought he could inherit eternal life. So in verse 29, the lawyer comes back at Jesus with another question. Would you read this question with me in the first gray box on your notes? But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This expert in the law is wanting to determine who classifies as a neighbor so that he can make sure he's doing enough to inherit eternal life. This is key. The man is asking this question because he wants the minimum standard. Jesus, what's the minimum I have to do? What are the minimum people that I need to love to inherit eternal life? And in reply, Jesus says this. Well, let me tell you a story. You ever notice how Jesus did that? I mean, this is a very pointed question. Who is my neighbor? And it seems like anytime Jesus was asked a question, who is my neighbor, he would say, well, once upon a time, there was a man who went from Jerusalem to Jericho. But Jesus' stories are so fascinating, and they're full of truth, and they're so memorable, right? We're here 2,000 years later talking about this story. So the lawyer asked a question, his second question, who is my neighbor? And we pick up in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. I want to set the stage for this entire story. The first character that we come across is a man. It's anyone. It's any person. No nationalities, no political party, no ethnicity. It's anyone. Jesus will not define or give parameters to who our neighbors are. Jesus had two options. He could have picked a man or a woman, and because a woman would never be traveling this road alone, he went with a man. So a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. I put a map on the screen for you so you can see the distance from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about 17 miles walk. There was one main artery, which is the road that we're talking about. So it's a very familiar road that Jesus is using in his, in his story. It's a very dangerous road. It was 4,000... It dropped over 4,000 feet over 17 miles and was filled with cracks and crevices and caves where robbers and bandits would hide. It's probably only about five or six feet wide. And this road had a couple nicknames. One was the Pass of Blood and one was the Red Road. It was well known to be a road where people were attacked. So a man was walking down this Red Road. And in verse 30, we're told... These bandits, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And in the next verse, verse 31, would you read this with me on the screen? A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. This text is written in such a way that it could begin like this. It just so happened that a priest was going down the road. It just so happened that a holy man of God who performed sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem was going down the road. Now in Israel, there were thousands of priests, and every year they had to serve two weeks in Jerusalem. So it's likely that this man is returning home after serving two weeks in the temple, and he's headed home to Jericho. And while in the temple, every morning and every night, he would have said, Deuteronomy 6, Love the Lord your God with everything you have. That morning before he saw this man, he would have said, Love the Lord your God with everything you have. And when he got home for dinner that night, he would have said those same words again. Kent Hughes, an author, writes these words. It's like a dagger to my heart this week. He says, Their neglect, he's talking about the priest here, their neglect of their neighbor was sandwiched between pious declarations of love for their God. How many times do I sing here and worship here and then I don't see people? And when the priest saw the man, he literally, he walked the opposite way. The word is when he saw him, he turned the opposite way and he walked around him. And I'm even wondering, on a five foot wide road, would he have had to maybe even step over a part of this man's body? He saw him. He saw him. And he didn't do anything. Verse 32 goes on to say this. Would you read this with me on the screen? So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. A Levite was a priest's assistant. He knew what the priest knew. And he served alongside the priest in the temple. And we're told, same word, when he came upon the man in the road, he went the opposite direction went the opposite way and passed by on the other side. 
If you're following in your notes, the priest and Levite both saw the man and did nothing. The priest and Levite both saw the man and they did nothing. Now remember, Jesus is telling this story to a bunch of Jewish people. They're probably a little irritated right now. They're probably a little irritated. But this is where Jesus really stirs the pot. In verse 33, he says these words. Would you read these words with me on the screen? Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. If you were hearing this story in a first century Jewish mindset, your blood would immediately begin to boil because what you need to know is Samaritans and Jews hated each other. The worst thing you could do to a Jewish person was to call them a Samaritan. In Luke 9, one chapter before our story today, James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, actually asked Jesus if they can call fire down from heaven to kill the Samaritans. There's no love lost. This hatred goes back 400 years and it's centered around racial purity because the Jews believe that while they, they remained pure during the invasion of the Babylonians, the Samaritans married their invaders. And so they, they called them half-breeds and mutts. In fact, one of the leading religious teachers' prayers in the time of Jesus, they would finish a prayer with these words. And do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. They wanted them to go to hell. They hated them. And Jesus takes this despised Samaritan and makes him the hero of the story. That's what Jesus does. If you're following in your notes, Jesus tells us that the Samaritan saw the man and he had compassion on him. He saw the man, and he had compassion on him. We're told in verse 33 that he was filled with compassion. And, and I want to share this word with you, because this is just a great Greek word. So we're going to learn a Greek word this morning. The word that we're given in verse 33, I'm going to show it to you on the screen. It's splagnitzomai. I'm going to say that again. It's just fun to say. Splagnitzomai. So on the count of three, we're going to say it together, right? One, two, three. Splagnitzomai. It's just fun, isn't it? But it's so rich in meaning, and it's so interesting that this is the word that's most frequently used in the New Testament to tell us about Jesus' emotional state, that he was filled with compassion. It's to be so moved to your foundation that what you see bothers you. And we're told Jesus takes this hated Samaritan and shows us that he was filled with the love of Christ. He was filled with the love of Christ. And if you're following in your Bibles, in verse 34, we're told the Samaritan went to this man he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. 
Jesus gets done telling this story, and then he asks the lawyer a final question. Would you read the question with me in the second box on your notes this morning? It says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Now catch this. This is really important. If you're following on your notes, Jesus changed the question completely. Jesus changed the question completely. The expert in the law was trying to determine who would be classified as a neighbor so he knew who he had to love. The lawyer asked the wrong question. If you're following in your notes, the wrong question is this, who is my neighbor? The wrong question is who is my neighbor? Jesus turns this question on his head and he said it's not about determining who your neighbor is, it's about defining what it means to be a neighbor. If you're following in your notes, Jesus gives us the right question, who can I be a neighbor to? Who can I be a neighbor to? Did you see that major shift? It's huge. Jesus is saying don't ask who your neighbor is. Instead, ask, who can you be a neighbor to? And in verse 37, we're told, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. The one who had mercy on him. Do you notice the the lawyer couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan? So he said, the one who had mercy on him. If you're following in your notes, the neighbor was the one who showed mercy. The neighbor was the one who saw the person in need and he showed mercy. I'm going to encourage you to maybe write this definition out to the side of that line in your notes. I read that, a definition this week. I thought it was very helpful. It, it was mercy is compassion moved to action. Mercy is compassion moved to action. It's not just thinking something or feeling something, it's doing something. Because the compassion of Jesus always leads to action. And that's because love is an action, it's not a feeling. Mercy is compassion moved to action. And so the lawyer had responded, the neighbor was the one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus finishes this entire story by saying the words, then go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. This word go, it's the same word that Jesus used in Matthew 28 where he gave his followers, he gave us the great commission. Go and make disciples. As you go, as you go along the path of life, go make disciples. And as you go along the path of life, ask, who can I be a neighbor to? And show them mercy if you can. Because if you act like a neighbor and you love others the way Jesus has loved you, you may just have the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with them and make a disciple. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, wrote these words in his book, Generous Justice. He says, deeds of mercy and justice should be done out of love, not simply as a means to the end of evangelism. What he's saying is we don't love people because they're a project. We love them because Jesus loves them and they're created in the image of Christ. 
But what Tim Keller says next is so true. He says, and yet there is no better way for Christians to lay a foundation for evangelism than by serving others and showing them mercy. The lawyer wanted to know if he could be a neighbor to a select few. And Jesus tells him through the story of the Good Samaritan, let the neighbor be you. Go be the neighbor. Man, what a story. What a story. I read that story numerous times this week, and it led to some questions that are still swirling around in my head. And after hearing this story, I wonder if you have a couple questions going on in your mind as well. So for the remaining time together, I want to talk about a few practical implications of what it might mean to go be a neighbor. So if you're following in your notes, I just want to walk through these with you. One, if you're following in your notes, God puts people in our path if we are looking. God puts people in our path if we're looking. The word saw appears three times in this story. Verse 31, verse 32, verse 33. The priest and the Levite saw the man just like the Samaritan, but they didn't think twice about him. How often do we go through our everyday lives and we see people, but we don't really see them? It makes me cringe to think how many people God has put on my path and I have never seen them. But this is how God works. He strategically puts people in our path. And perhaps it would do us well every morning simply to wake up and say, God, would you open my eyes today for whoever you want to put across my path, and if they have a need, show me how I might be able to meet it. Maybe we could just start every day like that. And this is where sharing your faith becomes more of a lifestyle than a church program because we're just waking up and saying, God, who are you going to bring across my path today? Give me eyes to see them and help me see them. God does put people on our path if we're looking. Number two, if you're following in your notes, we don't get to choose our neighbor's. We don't get to choose them. And this is where I struggled the most all week because I wanted to stand up here and I wanted to say to you, this is who your neighbor is and this is how you can help them. I wanted to define it for you so you could walk out of this room and know who you needed to look for and how you could help them. But I came to the realization that if Jesus was unwilling to define our neighbors, then I, wouldn't, I couldn't define them either. And what I realized is my questions this week sounded an awful lot like the lawyer's questions. Jesus, how many houses do I need to go down my street? Jesus, do you mean the guy standing at the corner of Toronto Road and uh, I-55 for three weeks straight? Do I need to be a neighbor to them? Man, I sounded an awful lot like that lawyer. I can't define who your neighbor is. Only you can do that with the help of the Holy Spirit and waking up and saying, God, would you help me see who you're putting on my path? But I do want to address something really quickly because I want to clear up a misconception that I believe might be going through some of your minds right now because it went through my mind all week. In this story and in the application of this story, we're not solely talking about homeless people. We're not solely talking about the mean-looking guy with a broken-down car on the side of the road. We're not solely talking about the man or woman who is begging on the same corner for weeks straight. 
God may absolutely give you the opportunity to be a neighbor to them. And we do have a responsibility to care for the least of these. But listen, it's far more likely and it's far more frequent. There, there are people that God puts in our lives on a regular basis if we would just see them for you. Maybe it's a neighbor who lives a, a couple houses down, like the story Brian told last week of Scott and Tom. And you have a conversation with them, and you find out you have something in common, and it leads to some great conversations. You may even get to share the gospel at some point. Maybe it's the widower who lives down the street, and they're lonely. They, they just need a conversation, or they need their yard raked or their yard mowed. Maybe it's a family at your child's school, and your children have become good friends, and you have the opportunity to get to know their parents. Perhaps it's the coworker who you talk to every day, but you don't really see them and your conversation never goes beyond surface level. Maybe it's a family member you really don't like spending time with. Maybe it's the person who takes your order every day at the coffee shop and it just looks like something's a little wrong. Maybe it's the person at the gym who works out at the same time as you every day. Could it be that God is bringing them to the gym at the same time as you because he's putting them in your path because he wants you to see them? He does that sort of thing. Could it be when you go to the grocery store and you see somebody who's checked you out before and you can go up to them and ask them how they're doing and really mean it? My wife does this unbelievably. She'll look at Meyer of who's checking her out and then go up and, and go to that person again and start a conversation. And she comes home and says, I had this great conversation with this lady at the grocery store. I'm like, that never happens to me. And she goes, well, you have to talk to people. <laughs> but it really happens if our eyes are open. It's a lifestyle. Maybe it's the kid at school, right? Or maybe it's Fuge this next week. And there's just a kid that's a little different. Or maybe it's just somebody who's having a hard time. Something's going on behind the scenes. You don't know what it is, but maybe you open your eyes and you see them. And maybe it is the guy or gal on the corner who needs money or needs food. I, I can't define who your neighbor is, but I can tell you God strategically brings people across our paths who often have a need that we can meet. And I'm talking physical, spiritual, or emotional. It's not always money. If we just see them. If we just see them. Number three, if you're following in your notes, being a neighbor is not always convenient. It's not always convenient. The priest and the Levite were too busy. I don't know if they just wanted to get home after a long two weeks at the temple. I don't know if they didn't want to be unclean according to their ceremonial laws, but for whatever reason, they didn't stop because it would have been inconvenient. How often do we do this? Where the Lord convicted me this week is what I do is that I see people as distractions and disturbances instead of divine appointments. And if I would just wake up and pray, God, would you help me see people for who they are created in your image and help me not think that they're a distraction or a disturbance, but a divine appointment. Man, I think I'd see more people. But being a neighbor is rarely going to fit inside of our nice, neat schedules. We need to know that. Number four, if you're following in your notes, being a neighbor has a cost involved. It has a cost involved. There was a cost involved for the Samaritan. 
He gave up some of his material possessions and he used his money, but perhaps the greatest cost was his time. He stopped. He was going somewhere. He stopped. He took the man to an inn and stayed with him all night and gave money to the innkeeper to take care of the man for two weeks and then went on his way. There was time involved. And I think sometimes what holds us back from being a neighbor is that it takes up our time and time is our most precious commodity. I'm better at giving my money than I'm giving my time, and I think that's true of us as a church. The reveal survey that we took over a year ago said that we are an unbelievably generous church with our money, but not necessarily with our time. And so can we pray into that, that God would help us see that our time is his time anyway, and that people aren't a distraction, and that it will cost us something if we want to be a neighbor. But we need to know that up front. It's going to cost us something. If that worries you, if that worries you that it's going to cost you something, let me address that in number five. If you're following in your notes, needs to be met are often small. Needs to be met are often small. But here's what I do with this story. This is a story of extravagant love. Make no doubt about it. Jesus frequently does that. He tells these stories of extravagant love because his love towards us was unbelievably extravagant. And sometimes we may have to be an extravagant neighbor. But, but what if, what if most of the time being a neighbor means doing small things? And I think sometimes we think, well, oh, to be a neighbor, I have to take on the great needs of the world. And when we do that, we don't know where to begin, and we get paralyzed, and it leads to inaction. And because we can't help all the children in Africa, we miss the person that God puts on our path on a consistent basis right here in Springfield, or Rochester, or Pawnee, or Riverton, or Chatham. We just miss them. Sometimes we think that if we are a neighbor, it's going to be overwhelming and we're going to get sucked in. And that leads to inaction as well. But I want to break that myth. I want to break that myth because I think sometimes being a neighbor is not the big thing, it's the small thing. Maybe it's giving someone a hug. Maybe it's sending a text. Maybe it's sending a card. Maybe it's a phone call. Maybe it's looking somebody in the eye. Maybe it's asking somebody how they're doing and meaning it. Maybe it's recognizing that somebody exists. What if it's not huge? What if it's mowing a yard or raking a yard or helping move furniture or watching somebody's kids for an afternoon? Being a neighbor is being intentional every day, looking for the people that God has put on our path. Many times, being a neighbor is meeting small needs. Sometimes it will be extravagant, but a lot of times it's small. But if you're worried about that, I want to address that in number six. Because what we do, right, we talk ourselves out of being a neighbor. It's so easy to talk ourselves out of. And I just want to show you we don't have to talk ourselves out of it. We can step into it. And so number six, if you're following along in your notes, being a neighbor has boundaries. Being a neighbor has boundaries. The Samaritan had boundaries. He didn't do everything. He did what he could. He provided for the man, and he provided lodging for the man, and then he went on his way. He did something. 
And please hear me say this, because this is so important in knowing our boundaries. Loving our neighbor does not mean we give them everything they want or ask for, emotionally, spiritually, or physically, all the time. It's like my kids. I have an eight-year-old and a four-year-old, and if I gave them everything they wanted every time they asked for it, they'd be the most spoiled, entitled children you've ever met, and that would not be a loving thing to do. I'd actually argue that'd be an unloving thing to do. Love is not giving someone everything they're asking for. Notice, the Samaritan provided relief. He didn't create dependence. He did what he could. He saw a need and he met it. He didn't create dependence. Being a neighbor is about seeing people God brings across our path and if there is a need we can meet, then we meet it. It's our responsibility to provide relief not create dependency. And there are times when the loving thing to do is not to give someone everything they're asking for, but point them to places where they can get help. So you need to know that. Number seven, and if you, if you say you're a follower of Jesus, you call yourself a follower of Jesus and you're here this morning, this may be the most important one for you. Number seven, our motivation for being a neighbor is Jesus. Our our motivation for being a neighbor is Jesus. And that's because the one telling the story of the good Samaritan is the great Samaritan. He's the great Samaritan. This story is a picture of Jesus and us. And when we grasp the enormity of what Jesus did for us and how much he loved us, we'll want to pass it on to others. When we realize that we were the person lying in the road, dead in our sins... And Jesus came to us and showed us compassion and had mercy on us. We'll want to be a neighbor to somebody else. And we'll want to pass that love on. Our motivation has to be what Jesus did for us. Because if it's not, let me give you this warning. If our, warn, if our motivation is not what Jesus did for us, then we're going to burn out never thinking we're doing enough. Is anybody in this room, not, you don't have to raise your hand, you don't have to nod your head, but is anybody in this room feeling guilty right now? I haven't done enough. I've missed people. I haven't done, I, I know it, I know I've missed what God's asked me to do. Does anybody feel guilty? Don't. Don't feel guilty. That is not what Jesus was trying to do with this lawyer. He was not trying to make him feel guilty. He's not trying to say, look how bad you've been at this. Look how many times you've messed up. What Jesus is saying is when you understand how I was a neighbor to you, you'll be a neighbor to someone else. This isn't about earning. Earning leads to guilt. We can do nothing to inherit our salvation. This is about a love for God always leading to a love for others that may just give us the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with them. I have a friend who's a pastor in Las Vegas, and he tells this story about a a man named Cody. He was a very successful businessman who got addicted to drugs, went through $600,000 of savings in one year, and found himself homeless. And some people from the church's homeless ministry went to the park where Cody lived, and they handed sandwiches out, and they gave a sandwich to Cody, and they told him, if you ever need to get a shower, 
you can come to our church and get a shower. And as Cody says, um, he knew he needed to go get a shower because even the other homeless people were telling him how bad he smelled. And so these are Cody's words. I walked into the church and this lady named Michelle, who knew me from the homeless ministry and who had handed me a sandwich in the park, said, good morning, Cody. How are you? Then she looked at me and she said, Cody, you need a hug. And these are Cody's words. He said, honey, you don't want to touch me because I haven't had a shower in three months. Cody says, if Michelle heard me, she didn't seem to care because she walked up to me, she looked me in the eyes, and she gave me a big hug, and she told me that Jesus loved me. And in that split second, I was a somebody. She even remembered my name, and that was the point where I knew that God was alive in this world, and it all started with a hug from a church greeter. Cody has gone on to get married and have children and start a new business, and he still says it began when somebody saw him and gave him a hug. It doesn't have to be the big things. Now, will every story end like that? Absolutely not. I've had friends that I have seen for four years. I've tried to do my best, and I still never had an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Maybe I'm just a link in the chain, and down the road, somebody else will be able to tell them about Jesus. But what if, right? Friends, what if God wants to bring somebody across our path? What if he wants to do this and we see them and we meet a need and we get to be part of God's plan and just maybe we get to tell them the life-saving message of Jesus? And it all started because we saw them. I want to be part of something like that. So the question we want to leave you with, it's the last line in your notes. Who is on your path that you're not seeing that you can be a neighbor to? Who's on your path that you're not seeing that you can be a neighbor to? And we're going to give you a couple minutes to think about this. We, we ended the message a few minutes early because we don't slow down in life to process questions like this. If you're already being a neighbor and you're loving people, way to go. Keep seeing them. Keep praying every morning. God, open my eyes. But if you're like me and you need to be more intentional, then maybe this is the time you could take out that card we gave you at the beginning of the series and write down a couple names of people that consistently come across your path and you just haven't seen them. And maybe you're here and you just don't know who that is. Maybe your prayer these next couple minutes is, God, would you open my eyes? Help me see people who you bring across my path because he does. He does. So we want to give you just a couple minutes to think about that, and then we'll, we'll close together.
God, we confess we're not so good at this sometimes. We've messed this up royally sometimes. We've missed people. We just haven't seen them. We confess that. But we are so grateful that you are a God of forgiveness and a God of new beginnings. God, we read in Lamentations that morning by morning new mercies we see. And so our prayer today, God, is that you would help us be a people who see people and look for a need, and if we can meet it, then we meet it. And we would boldly ask you, Father, as we look around and see who can we be a neighbor to, that you would give us the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with them. But God, open our eyes, break our hearts for what breaks yours. God, we want to partner with you in this. Use us. 